In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents. If you feel depressed and if you feel anxious and you feel confused, you know what? Welcome to the club. Gazpacho police. Oh my God. What a stupid son of a bitch. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. The Betches Sup Podcast. Sayonara, sucker. Hello and welcome to the Betches Up Podcast. I'm Sammy Sage and today I am joined with the brilliant Malcolm Gladwell, the host of Revisionist History. And we are here to talk about some really incredible topics about his new season. We are going to talk about his new project, I Hate the Ivy League. And you really need no introduction, but welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. We are thrilled to speak to you and you are really just in the middle of an incredible season. Um, I've been really enjoying listening to it. So let's just get right into that. The new season of Revisionist History is focused on experiments of all different kinds. Mm -hmm. Did something particular happen or inspire you that that would be sort of the thread of your next season? What was really kind of behind that? You know, I like to pretend that there is purpose and intention behind everything I do. So I should have a whole like spiel on this. I think it was an accident. I think that I noticed that a bunch of the ideas I was pursuing were all basically experiments or upcoming in the season, the last three episodes are, for example, all about this totally strange, what's called the Minnesota starvation experiment, which is when a bunch of men during the Second World War agreed to be starved so that scientists could understand what happens to people when they're deprived of food. But I had that and I had another one that was like, oh, you know, I should just maybe do the whole season on, on experiments. So I think it was more happenstance. Okay, fair enough. Did you have any like hunches of what or hypotheses that you wanted to kind of prove or disprove? Or were you just interested in looking at the themes that you could maybe pull together from a bunch of different experiments? Well, you know, the, the thing that what makes experiments interesting as a subject is that the whole point of an experiment is that you don't know how it's going to turn out when you start it, right? And if you think you know how it turns out, first of all, you're often surprised, but secondly, you've kind of ruined it. So an experiment is, you enter into an experiment in the same way that you would enter into like reading or watching a mystery, right? Mm-hmm. If you spend too much time trying to figure out who did it before you're done, you ruin it, right? I mean, I always I, do that. I think you do that, <laughs> yeah. I think you do that. You might be just depriving yourself of a great deal of pleasure because you can't, you can't help yourself. I can't. You got to turn off your brain. Turn off your brain. That's what you have to do. Well, experiments, that's, I kind of love the, I have no idea how this is going to end up kind of feeling. So the topic is a kind of great one. I'm someone who reads enormous numbers of mysteries, parenthetically. So I'm used to this. And I like to delay until the last possible moment. I like the book to tell me or the movie to tell me who did it. I don't, I'm not jumping ahead. When I was younger, I used to actually read the end. Like I would. You didn't. I did. I did oh, that all the so time. that's so appalling. I'm sorry. That's like the worst <laughs> thing I've ever heard. My, you know, my grandmother did it and she was very inspirational to me in a lot of ways. And I was like, oh yeah, everyone must it's read like the It's like the end. worst idea I've ever heard. 
Wait, because you, you couldn't bear. I couldn't could, bear to not know. You couldn't bear to. Know. I had to know. I had to know immediately. Oh, and but I've actually I've kicked that habit decades ago. Actually, so okay. So in everything you covered, whether you it ended up in the season or not, what was the most interesting experiment that you that you read about or featured, and what surprising results did it yeah. yield? Well, the fun one. So I decided to start the season with what I call magic wand experiments, where I call up scientists or anyone actually who has an opinion on anything and ask them, what's the experiment you always wanted to do but can't? For whatever reason, logistics, money, ethics, or even laws of nature. So I got all these amazing, um, my theory was that every scientist who does experiments for a living has a magic wand in the back of their head. They, the one they, you know, if, you know, if, if they could measure, they would do if they could wave. And so I started calling up scientists and sure enough, this is true. They all have a magic wand in the back of their heads. So one of them was my friend, Adam, who's a psychologist at NYU. He wants to divide all babies born uh, into two groups. And um, half of all babies are grow up only with blackberries. Phones? Phones. Okay. And the, half, like the fruit? And half grow up with smartphones, with like iPhones. And we follow them for like, he was like, we could follow them for 40 years. Let's follow them for four years. And then he wants to find out who's happier. Okay. I think that's a so interesting one, idea. One group only gets email and phone. So you that's all you can do with your phone is the, telephone, email. That's what it. about BBM and nope. like low level oh. internet? Low level internet. No, 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 no low level internet. No, 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 no. All you get, all you get, we can do. I love that you, by the way, remembered BBM, Blackberry uh, Messenger. Of course. That was, I mean, my college experience was like the four years uh, that everyone had a Blackberry before everyone switched to iPhone. So my college experience was uniquely driven by the exchanging of pins mm -hmm. and people updating their locations. It was such a unique yeah. experience. But I also do remember there being very, very poor internet. Oh, but terrible. you could use it if you really needed it. In a pinch, yeah. but it would take forever. Yes. I think we're yanking that. I think what we want for the experiment to work perfectly is one group only gets a, basically a phone and email, and one group gets everything else. Okay. And we figure out, we follow for 40 years, and we figure out who's happier. And the thing that's interesting about the experiment is that, you know, lots and lots and lots of people have an opinion about who would be happier. But no one, if you're, you know, no one has any definitive, we haven't studied this. We've launched into the iPhone era, the smartphone era, without ever actually figuring out whether giving someone continuous access to every social media and internet thing under the sun makes them better off or worse off. So what's your opinion? Uh, well, I'm old, so okay. I'm going to give an old man's uh, answer. My old man's answer is, of course, we'd be better off without all that internet garbage. You know, I'm somewhat would say young. I don't know if our producers would agree because uh, they're younger you're than much, me. You're much younger. But, but, but I agree with you. I think that um, adult life works great with uh, the BlackBerry. But here's what young people, yeah, not only did it work great, you, you no, I don't think you're old enough to remember this. When yeah, I started I in the workforce, there was you. I I had a, I was I used to be a reporter for the Washington Post. If you went out to dinner, 
they couldn't reach you. This whole idea of like work not being able to reach you. So like, I remember once Jackie Onassis died. I was here, the New York correspondent. It was like the biggest story of blah, blah, blah. She dies at like, we knew she was sick. And I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go to dinner. So I go to dinner. While I'm at this long boozy dinner at, you know, Odeon downtown, she dies. Every other news organization in the country gathers at the hospital as a whole. I'm just like eating a burger. And, <laughs> But, and I just like, I look back and it's like, fantastic. It was magical. Right. And here's the thing. In that world, that was okay because somebody was manning the desk and could get there. Yeah. And it wasn't like a race to see who could tweet it first because at the earliest, you're all just getting into the next morning's paper. Yeah. And me, right. and I feel that not only were the reporters probably better off that you could just like have your dinner and not like go to the hospital so you can stand there um, to see what everyone else is seeing. Um, but you, the, but the human beings receiving the information could sit through their dinner without yeah. having to deal with like the death of a major public figure until the next morning. And, you know, I, I agree. I, I'm definitely of the, I was alive when you would have to call a restaurant if you wanted to find someone who wasn't there and you wouldn't know mm -hmm. when they were getting back and you're just dealing with it. And you know, it's convenient to know where everyone is, but I don't think that's like ultimately to... the effect. So you're you're going to vote for people being healthier. I yeah, I'm inclined to believe that yes. We go into this a little bit. There's a a, a very serious argument here, which is about um, social feedback. So when you have kids, the one of the ways kids learn how to interact with other people is that there are immediate consequences to misbehavior. If I, if you and I are both six years old and I say some horrible thing to you, you can, you will get, you will, there'll be consequences. Cry. I'll cry. You might cry. You might hit me. You might, you might tell a teacher on me. You might, um, I might, your friends might recoil in horror and ostracize me. There's like 10 different things that could happen. And what I learned in most cases in those instances, oh, it was a really bad idea to say that. Like, that's not what we do if we want to. Now, in a, the, in a world where everyone's heavily online, the amount of social feedback we're getting is greatly reduced. So one thing we don't know the answer to is, how big of a deal is that? If the kid now, so now if I text a mean thing to you, you can text something mean back to me, but it's not nearly as consequential as if your friends ostracized me, you hit me, you told a teacher, and, and I saw the look on your face right. when I said it, right? All that's gone. So, like, what is? Are we um, permanently jeopardizing the emotional development of an entire generation? Or maybe it doesn't matter. We don't know. I think it ultimately may not matter because they are all equally jeopardized in a way. But I do think what you're speaking to is a real loss. I think yeah. that the inability, because ultimately humans are still the ones writing things on their phones and humans still make a face behind the screen or cry if they were hurt. And not only has it taken that away completely, but it has taken the human context out of all interactions. And then the amount of feedback that is given to a person without emotion, the understanding of the emotion behind it or any context, it just all feels so flat. Yeah. but also um, overwhelming because yeah. there are so many cues and things you're reading without tone, without 
a human face and un- emotion and understanding and maybe even knowing who that person is. Like it could just be anonymous. Um, yeah, I think it does not do amazing things for child's brain development. And I actually, I have a, a friend who's working on a book that's coming out in a few months about this, about te- she interviewed like thousands of teenagers about their experience on social media, on smartphones, with bullying, with, you know, how it affects them going to school. And I mean, I think, cause it's not like these kids don't have in-person interaction. They then do have to suffer mm-hmm. sort of these consequences in reality of what they experienced online. And I think it, you know, ultimately is going to be quite a problem. Yeah. Or. Yeah. Here, here's another fun one that someone gave me. I talk about this, this woman, fantastic woman. Um, who's uh, uh, she's one of the world's leading experts on twins, Nancy Siegel. And she, uh, one of the experiments, this is a, a hypothetical experiment again. It's a magic wand. You can't do this in real life, obviously. She wants to take identical twins, dozens of them, hundreds of them, and make one white and one black. How? No, no so that's the magic <laughs> yeah, wand, okay. right? Yeah. So then you send them out into the world for like 30 years, and then you check back in and you see, so we have now equalized. So the biggest problem in studying anything in the real world is it's really tough to kind of control all the crazy variables. We've controlled every variable except the color of their skin. So they have the same genes, same parents. They grew up in the same house. They're exactly the same age. They go to the same schools. They probably dress the same. I mean, they're, they're identical twins, right? One of them's not prettier than the other. One isn't smarter than the other. One isn't taller than the other. Exactly the same. Except one's got, and her point was, we will find out how what a big deal racism is in America, right? You gather them, you just have a conference 30 years later, and you have the pairs come up on stage one after another and talk about how their life has gone. And you just see, did it make a difference or did it not, right? Now, I, we sort of know the answer to that question, but it would be incredibly useful for the way we think about racism in this country if we had that kind of experiment. We said, okay, listen, you know, to all those who said, oh, black people are this or that, or white people are this or that, all those, that nonsense is shut down. We actually have these pairs who are in every way equal testifying to what it meant. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a pretty essential study. Because, I mean, now what I think the way they study that is like looking at blind resumes that are, you know, something yeah. like that, which is... Gets you, doesn't really, doesn't answer the question in the kind of, with the kind of richness yes. that you want. Correct. Um, my point is, so once you start dreaming up these kinds of magic wand experiments, you just, I mean, you can go. I, I mean, I called so I use only a tiny fraction of the ones I, uh, ones I collected. But I just started randomly calling up scientists and researchers and asking them for their magic wand, and they all like instantly like, oh yeah, this one, this one. And some of them would have like four of them. It was kind of really hilarious. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click 
gift mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com, and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So let's actually talk about um, one of the episodes that we're going to focus on, okay. which is, I think it was episode three. It was about the triplicate system, or maybe I'm just thinking it was episode three because of the triplicate thing. Um, and how essentially this system within the medical, within pharmaceuticals, basically doctors would have to, before they prescribed anything, they would have to have three copies of any prescription that was, I believe, a controlled substance. Mm-hmm. Was that right? And some states have these systems in place, which almost acts as like, a backup system, or you could argue like a big brother type of system for doctors who are prescribing certain types of drugs. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that episode, that system, and what you think this might have achieved within the context of the opioid crisis? Yeah. So this is this totally weird story that I was reading uh, this uh, fabulous book that was written by Patrick Radenkeefe on the Sacklers, the family behind OxyContin. And on page like, it's a huge book, on page like 548 in like a one sentence reference, he talks about some study that had been done. So I look up the study, I was like, oh my goodness, it's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. So the story basically is this, a hundred years ago in California, there's this kind of wacky guy who takes over California's DEA, their kind of drug agency. And he has this idea that the number one cause of, of, of drug overdoses, of people getting hooked on, on addictive drugs, is doctors prescribing them those drugs. So he says, we, gotta, we have to keep tabs on doctors. This is the 1930s. So he invents this system where when a doctor writes a prescription, there has to be three copies. That there's the copy you say, take to the pharmacist, there's a copy that the doctor keeps, and there's a copy that gets sent to the state, to the big agency, and this is the agency this guy ran. And he says, I wanna have a copy of every prescription for any addictive, potentially addictive drug, painkillers basically, that's ever written in the state of California. And people think he's nuts and he gets, manages to get it passed, doctors hate it. People like, it's this bit of bureaucrat, everyone's gotta, you gotta hang on to your piece. The doctor has to hang on to every prescription for five years, it's a pain in the ass. There's filing cabinets in Sacramento that go on forever. Everyone thinks this is like big government run amok. But over the course of the next 50, 60 years, I think four other states adopt the same system. Uh, New York, Illinois, Texas, and I wanna say Idaho, okay? The rest of the country doesn't. No one thinks anything about this until the opioid crisis happens. And hundreds of thousands of people are dying from drug overdoses. And people begin to notice this weird thing which is that the opioid epidemic does not um, happen equally across the country. There are certain states where it's out of control, 
And certain states, like, it was out of control in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. In New York State, it was never out of control. It was actually a fraction the size of the, it was out of control in uh, Indiana. It was not out of control in Illinois, on and on and on. And they realized that the, the reason was any state that had had one of these triplicate rules on the books for the last 30, 40 years had a way lower OxyContin problem than the states that didn't. And what was happening was the very thing this crazy guy back in California had said 100 years ago, which was if you if the doctor knows that you're keeping a copy of his prescription and you can look and see that he's prescribing tons and tons of drugs, they will be careful before prescribing something aggressively or recklessly. And lo and behold, that's what happened. And literally tens of thousands of people are alive today because of this weird rule, which everyone had forgotten about, and which had been considered to be the kind of brainchild of this crazy, you know, uh, he was like a, he was this guy who came up with it in California. He was one of those people who thought that marijuana, you know, destroyed your brain. He's one of those, he's like a nut. Yeah. And this was a, an outcome of this. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> but not, that's the whole point that like, it's this incredible story about an idea that, that is birthed as an example of paranoid nuttiness. Turns out almost a hundred years later to be a lifesaver and to have, you know, the four of the biggest states in the country dodged a bullet on, on the on the on the um, the opioid crisis because they happened to have had this thing on the books. So was that the express purpose of the system to other people other than this guy? Was that the reason for the system, or was he just trying to kind of like in, insert control into into the system? Well, so he's a guy. He's a he's a guy who thinks that doctors are out of control, and they have too much autonomy, and. Uh, anyone who's concerned about protecting the health of their citizens has got to keep an eye up, uh, eye out on what doctors are doing. Now, doctors, of course, think this is an outrageous position. They're deeply offended and they fight it tooth and nail. So that's why the idea um, ran into so much friction and why it only spread to five other states because medical associations said, are you kidding me? We're not, you don't, we're not gonna give you the means to look over our shoulder, but, um, it does very clearly have a kind of uh, chilling effect on doctors' prescribing habits. I have friends, by the way, who, you know, uh, in New York, who were on, prescribed certain kinds of painkillers, and they would describe for years, they would describe going to the doctor and how hard it was to get a doctor to prescribe you a painkiller in New York State. Because the doctor knew, if I'm, I'm, fill I'm sending a copy of this prescription to Albany, like, you know, the minute you leave the office, I don't, I, I gotta be really careful. They're they're looking over my shoulder. Yeah, I mean, their chart better back up. Yeah. In, in some ways, I imagine it it prevented, you know, overzealous prescribing or just that sort of marginal, oh, maybe, well, why not let them yeah. have that? I think it, you could also, for a very long time, people made the argument that it also pre prevented um, prescribing that was warranted. It, you know, so the pendulum, could swing too far in the other direction and make doctors too skittish to even do their jobs, which is supposed to prevent pain. Um, but it was—it just so happened that the OxyContin was such a kind of extraordinary and lethal injection into the medical system that you, you really did need that kind of check in place. Definitely. You also mentioned that in those same states, economic outcomes, health outcomes for babies, and violent crime were all lower. Yeah. Do you believe there's any inherent correlation or do you believe there's maybe like a third overarching factor? I think the, the people who've done the studies, so what we've seen, there's been 
ever since this breakthrough study, which showed that states with this weird law in the books had way lower OxyContin problems, there's been a whole follow-up series of studies, all of which makes sense, which is if you don't have people hooked on OxyContin, then you have a much smaller pool of addicts who are trying to serve their addiction. So anything that is a consequence of addiction is going to be lower in states that have these laws in the books. So you're going to see, what do addicts do? They, you know, they neglect their children. They uh, steal things to support their habit. They, you know, they're more likely to engage in violent crime for any number of reasons. I mean, addiction is an incredibly debilitating um, problem. So it makes sense that states that dodge the the brunt of the OxyContin um, and later the heroin crisis, which are linked, states that do dodge the opioid um, crisis are going to have fewer social problems. It's very interesting how almost like your state of residence can become a risk factor for oh, something. Yeah. Did you come across any, any other examples of where living in a certain place is a risk factor for a health problem or some other type of detrimental outcome? Well, sure. So this is so interesting, this, this question. Um, this is one of the newest and most interesting directions that, um, uh, that kind of um, sociological research is going, which is we're beginning to understand. So we thought a long time about your family, how much do they matter? And then we thought about, you know, money, how much does money matter? And we thought about, you know, with all the kind of normal things we ticked off, there's been this big move now recently to talk about your neighborhood or your town. And um, it turns out that that matters way, way more than we um, realized. That there was a brilliant study done by an economist a couple of years ago where he, does, he used this huge nation, national data set and showed that if you're poor, there's, you know, the. He, he made a list of the best places to live if you're poor in America and the worst places to live if you're poor. And by the way, the difference is astounding. So the best place to live if you're poor is, um, memory serves, is Salt Lake City. Okay. And you are so much better off as a poor person in Salt Lake City than you are in the typical American city. I mean, we're not talking about small degrees of difference here. We're talking about massive differences. It really matters. You know, think about it quality of schools, the kind of social opportunities and economic opportunities, the availability of jobs, the, the climate. We know that air pollution is a, you know, I could go on, like, how likely is your child to meet another healthy child who is in, you know, who has uh, all those kinds of things, their, your exposure to violence. I mean, I could go on. Your money can go way further. Your money than can go in way further. Many cities, yeah. and you, you're living in just better conditions, probably. Salt Lake City turns out the Mormons turns out turned out to have built this extraordinary kind of um, uh, effective uh, social net. Um, there's a, just a series of social su support services for poor people that just doesn't exist anywhere else. I could talk about Mormons all day if you want to go on to that. Uh, <laughs> if you want to sidetrack the case, there. The case from going to Brigham Young is like really strong. Do you know how cheap Brigham Young is? How much? I forgot the exact number, but basically it's a fantastic school that is a fraction of a typical public university. Really? Oh, yeah. It's like education in Utah is like famously an incredible bargain. You know, I do think the more, I, I think the Mormon community has, I mean, there's so much to say about you know, I, I don't want to get into like the keep sweet, pray and obey of it all. But mm -hmm. I think like the sort of mainstream, you know, Mormon community that you see, they're very, 
integrate into social media more than I would say like many religious communities are. And you're right. Like the social network that is within the communities is very apparent. Um, the sort of what you were saying, like your neighborhood and your town, not just, I think, quality of living, but I think that the way that people interact with each other, like the level of reliance, not even in a bad way, but in a interconnected yeah. way, Strong I think culture. you see yeah. that in, yeah. in religious communities, especially, but mm -hmm. in the Mormon community too, because they tend to be pretty concentrated, but we could do a separate episode. on that. Bite me back. Yeah. You are, you have that invitation. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Just back to the triplicate program specifically, do you think that a mandatory federal triplicate program would be a way of stopping, you know, the opioid crisis in its tracks at this point? Well, we have a version of that now because now we have digital prescription monitoring. And the la I believe for the longest time, only one American state, which was Missouri, refused to put one in place and they've now joined everyone else. But it's not clear that the digital system works as well as the paper system. It's just this whole weird sideline, which is the thing that made doctors so kind of conscious that someone was looking over their shoulder was the idea that there was that they had to send a slip of paper to their state capital and that they had to they knew that another slip of paper was going to be kept in their office that, as weird as that sounds that has a kind of psychological impact in a way that automatic digital monitoring that you even forget exists after a while doesn't so it's a uh, so we all have a version of this now but no one thinks it's as good as the as the old the old school one. I, I mean, I see why, like if you're traveling and you, you know that your passport is, is recorded somewhere, but you yeah. want a paper copy because that's what you're going to use if it gets stolen. Like you're, I, I do think there is something even in this day and age to having things physically on oh, yeah. paper that makes them feel more real. If you buy, if you sign a contract, you are not digitally signing probably you're yeah. probably hand signing i definitely think there is something in the act of like i have my cabinet and i don't want the fbi to read that yeah like something very powerful about yeah. that 
So I'm wondering if maybe this works in the opposite direction. So what I was thinking as I was listening to this episode is extrapolating this principle, but potentially in a way that the chilling effect could be harmful. And the first thing I thought of was how doctors are distributing, let's distributing or giving healthcare in the wake of the row reversal. Oh, yes. So can you talk about how the implications of this study map onto, you know, these the new ways that doctors are now fearing prosecution yeah, um, yeah. now? Sure. Although, um, so the idea, you're absolutely right that the end of Roe opens up a scenario where um, the behavior of physicians is now um, subject, open to state scrutiny in a way that we would have thought unimaginable um, 10 years ago or, or before the, so things like, um, you know, uh, the, the fray, you know, the, in certain states, you're allowed to abort a fetus if the mother's life is endangered. Well, how do you define the mother's life is endangered, right? That's a term that's injected into the legal language of some of these anti-abortion statutes that will now be put on the books. But you could imagine in a moment, a doctor, maybe it's a borderline case. What does a doctor do in that borderline case? They must, they're suddenly aware of the fact that what used to be a simple medical decision, this, uh, you know, there's a chance this could prove fatal to the mother, I'm gonna act now, has now become a question where they're in legal jeopardy if the action they take somehow runs afoul of a law and the law itself is this vague principle that's being interpreted by a group of people who may have a quite a radical uh, political and philosophical agenda on the subject. So, I mean, totally. I mean, if the what the story I was telling was at its at its kind of at its most conceptual was simply that um, human behavior is acutely sensitive, particularly people who are making consequential decisions about things like health, is acutely sensitive to incentives, to surveillance, to any kind of, you know, doctors don't operate in a vacuum. That's basically what this whole story is about. Like, and you're totally right. We are now entering into a, potentially into an era where that principle is going to get um, dramatically expanded and used for purposes that um, may make a lot of us uncomfortable. Let's do a little thought experiment. Magic wand. Okay. Let's say that every everyone in the world's actions were hypothetically searchable, like on a database. Okay. You know, they yeah. want to see what you what text you sent six months ago at noon. You know, someone could find that. How do you think that would change people's behavior? Well, we've already had versions of this already. So the answer is, I think, it would change people's behavior an astonishing amount. Um, and the reason I say that with as much certainty as I do is, so think about the, in its most repressive state, uh, the Soviet Union in the say the 40s and 50s. When Stalin was still around, where they really have one of the most um, uh, aggressive totalitarian regimes in history, where people honestly do think that they are being watched at some point by the, um, by the state, or that they sincerely doubt whether, they don't know whether many people in the social circle are actually loyal to them or reporting on their activities to the state. What happens under those situations? Well, uh, lots of things. So everything as simple as your, uh, the kinds of friendships you have change dramatically. So 
you basically can only trust your family members. Our very, 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 very close friends. So if you think about our friendship structure now, um, and I imagine, I'm gonna describe my own, I imagine it's not much different from anyone listening to you. I have a core of very close friends, and then I have concentric circles around them of you know, one step removed from close friend, two steps removed from close friends. Everyone in those concentric circles are people that I basically like and trust. And the, the great kind of paradox of those is that the people who are actually most useful to you tend to be the friends on the fringes. They know things you don't know. They're the ones who get you jobs. They're the ones who find you, you know, dates or whatever. They're the ones who- Recommendations. Recommendations. Because they're occupying a different universe, right? right? You run into someone, you see them, talk to them three times a year, and like, wow, that person, blah, blah, blah. If you have a situation where you think you're under surveillance and everything is being watched, all of those, all of the, you, you shut down everything except the inner ring. And what that does is it robs you of so many opportunities to learn about things, to experience things, to meet new people, to build any kind of, if you're starting a, think about starting a, a business. When you started a business, right? When you start a business, you don't just rely entirely on your best friends. We did, that was actually the problem. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, For several that. years, <laughs> we've been three of us, best friends just only talk to each other. And no, it's true, once in running this business, once we, started networking and speaking to other people and like we're a little bit inherently untrustworthy yeah. or especially then because we were really young like my own my world opened up like yeah. i have all of the you know it's just changes everything no so yeah so yeah. we're in agreement I see the point. you had to step outside your immediate circle in yes. order to grow and succeed as a business so in a world where you can't do that you almost can't start a business right yeah so it's like it's incredibly crippling to um I saw a thing this morning where uh, there was a poll done of, of medical professionals and said a one in five are thinking of leaving the profession in the next two years. And, you know, things like this that we're talking about are part, not, they're not the whole reason, they're part of the reason. Why would you want to be a, an OBGYN in a situation where something you, a decision you make could land you in jail? I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if you're 60, and you're making, do I work for another five, six years or do I retire? You're like, you know what, F it, I'm, I'm retiring, it's not worth it. Right, and then that severely limits the not institutional knowledge in the industry of how to treat these things. I mean, that is, again, another whole episode we could do. One more question on the, the triplicate mm -hmm. point. So something you started in the episode describing is how this was sort of a progressive, radical idea that that you know really had that progressive mark of excessive bureaucracy that people made it you know it felt like the state was becoming so like intimately involved in these doctors lives ultimately i do think that is sort of a running thread between with progressive policies and especially with the way that people communicate them mm. how do you, why does it seem like progressives struggle to sort of succinctly communicate and then or in some ways like succinctly govern in a way that that uh doesn't feel like such like it's such an overreach. Like, how do you think that progressives can sort of pitch their policies mm. to the American people in a way that like really lays out why it's beneficial rather than why this is just, you know, the government coming to kind of fix everything, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would say, I mean, I, this is not something as Canadian I think a great deal about, but I, um, 
I would imagine that it would be useful to pick your battles. So, you know, this if you are a progressive, you sort of have to figure out, okay, I really care about climate change and I really care about women's reproductive rights. And I'm gonna say, and I care a lot, maybe I care a lot less about, I don't know, let me go down the list. I mean, I, I think that what, um, what tends to create the largest amount of friction ideologically between progressives and everyone else or, is the idea that they're out to change everything. I think you have to sort of concede some things. Right. Um, you know, like not, not get, um, and even things that you care deeply about. It just makes, you gotta be strategic. Like, I mean, I would argue that those two issues, for example, are just way, way, way more important than, um, I mean, I would add maybe, uh, I would maybe add gun, um, gun control or some sort of to that in a kind of, sec although I'm sort of dubious of the ability of government to do anything about guns at this point. So I would say climate change is really important and granting kind of basic freedoms to women over their own bodies seems really, really important to me. And I'll compromise on everything else. That makes it easier, I think, to interact with. Because there's lots of other people on the, there are a lot of people on the other side of the aisle who actually agree with those two things. They're like, yeah, I, I can play with that. I can do that. Right. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel at this point there are so many issues that like a pro-democracy platform could be sort of that answer that in theory if you're pro if you are actually enacting laws and legislation that reflect what the populace wants, then you will in theory end up with better rights for women, more done about climate change, more let's say background checks or limits on assault rifles. Like I it does feel that if you could actually get a a policy that reflects Americans' desires, then you, you know that would be kind of a shortcut yeah. to fixing a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, that's a harder, that's a, that's more a, abstract. That's a that's a long hard battle trying to like, I mean, you have problems with the Constitution and um, all such. Uh, so um, yeah, but I I mean I I I am by nature a. Uh, an optimist, but my optimism only survives if I limit the amount of time and attention I spend on, on political <laughs> details. Yes, details. Yes, details. Details. Yeah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are just as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They're milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, let's talk about your new series, I Hate the Ivy League. I Hate the Ivy League. Okay, yes. what is what is the long and short of why you hate the Ivy League? Well, it's funny. I've hated it for a long time. I've returned obsessively to the subject of my hatred of the Ivy League. I just think it's preposterous. 
for many, many, many reasons. One, so in Canada, the best school is the University of Toronto, where I will so on to modestly say I attended. Um, University of Toronto, Canada's a country of one-tenth, it's one-tenth the size of America. How many students do you think attend the University of Toronto? 100,000. Close, yeah, it's like, uh, it's probably 80. Wow, okay, okay. So big school. It's the biggest school in Canada is also the best school in Canada. This is such a kind of fundamentally dumb, obvious point, which is, first of all, if you have a good school, if it's the best school, it should serve the most students, right? Because if you have something, if you're really good at something, it makes the best sense for society for you to help as many people as you can. Good doctors aren't people we limit. We don't say, that guy's such a great surgeon, he's only accepting two or three patients a year right now. Right. No, you try to have no, him see as many that, patients though. as possible, <laughs> right? You don't, it's like, it's, this is preposterous. So in Canada, the logic says that, first of all, we're going to define something, part of what makes the University of Toronto a good school is that it quite happily, it's really good at giving a good education to 80,000 people, right? That's part of the Canadian mentality is we're going to bake into our definition of good the notion that the it serves a lot of people well. In America, there's a notion of good, which is the opposite, which I've never... It's like, like a lake, a pond it's of like, good in the Northeast. It's nuts. It's like, ever since I got here, I arrived in America as a 20, at the age of 20, many years ago. And ever since I arrived here at that age, I have... I cannot wrap my mind around the logic of these quote unquote prestigious selective schools who's who seem to make it their stock in trade to educate as few people as possible. I've never, I never understand. How can you be good if you're going out of your way to educate as few people as possible? Well, I think it reflects the, I think the difference reflects the Canadian belief in a true belief in a rising tide lifts all boats kind yeah. of vibe versus the American claw your way up the ladder or else type of vibe. Yeah, but this is making it so, <laughs> Uh, I was just looking yesterday for complicated reasons, well, mostly because I hate the Ivy League, at the financial statements of Princeton University. Mm. So Princeton Pick University- Pick the worst one. I know, I know. <laughs> you didn't go there, did you? No, I didn't, but I have a, 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 more to say on that. <laughs> so Princeton University, uh, last year their endowment grew by $11 billion from 37 to 48 billion. They, the cost of running Princeton is about 2 billion. So. They made $9 billion more than it cost to run school last year. Mind you, they're not spending, they're still charging tuition and getting government grants. So it's not like they're taking all the money out of the- And no taxes. Out of the till. And they don't pay any taxes. So like, and Princeton, I've been in recently, it's, uh, it is gorgeous and they've spared no expense, as you would imagine. It's tiny. It's an absurdly small place. And they got $47 billion. I will tell you, not only have I been there recently, yeah. because uh, an aunt of mine lives near there, that is where I wanted to go to school so badly. All I wanted was to go to Princeton. I ended up going to Cornell, the least prestigious of the Ivy Leagues, but also the biggest. And there's, I went to one of the state schools. Yeah. And there I took a class called um, Economics of the University. Uh -huh. And we basically learned, essentially the whole semester sort of proved this point that in America, the 
schools are essentially making almost all of their decisions based on the U.S. News and World Report rankings. That's why I'm obsessed with the it. formula yeah. that calculates what those rankings will be. And it the formula is just like, I don't have even like a the only like word I can think of is like fakakta, which is Yiddish, and it's like yeah. I, I, the the um, the Michigan. things yeah like the things that they put as highly weighted, which I would say comes down to the size of the endowment is like really yeah. kind of the key to this ranking, and the ranking seems just deeply at odds with what actually would make a better school. Yeah. So, so, so I hate the Ivy League is a collection of my rants against the Ivy League. And some of, there are at least two or two of them of the rants are about the US News rankings on this exact point. I didn't get up to that one yet. Yeah, yeah, on this exact point where I break down what the US News algorithm says and how, and I use as an example, this, um, college in uh, New Orleans called Dillard, which is a historically black college. And my point was, so Dillard serves, um, delivers a very good education to a, to a uh, group of students who come from um, uh, quite impoverished backgrounds. So a good percentage of the kids at Dillard um, would be the first in their family to go to college. And where, where the family income would be in the bottom kind of quartile of the United States. It is impossible for Dillard to rise and to be at the top of the US News rankings. Not because they're not a good educational institution, not because the students don't like it, but because they don't have enough money and they don't charge enough money and they don't turn away enough students. All these things are nuts. So I did this exercise where I got together with uh, somebody who had hacked the US, it's a secret algorithm, it's like Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Someone who had hacked the algorithm and, I, and with the president of Dillard. And we tried to figure out if Dillard really wanted to rise in the US news rankings, what would they have to do, right? And so we figured out how much money, how many billions of dollars would they have to raise? How many shiny new dorms would they have to build? How many students would they have to turn away? Uh, you know, on and on and on. And the answer is, of course, the only way that Dillard could rise in the rankings is to stop being Dillard. It could no longer be a school that serves, uh, you know, kids from the lower end of the income spectrum who are the first in their family to go to college. Right. That's now. If your definition of good is simply a school that has lots of money and serves lots of people who have lots of money, then y you get what you know. You get what you deserve. Like this is an absurdity. No, I completely agree. I think it's really, it's sort of like you see the trend of like white flight mm. when schools were starting to be integrated, and you had you know parents who didn't want to send their kids to integrated schools in suburban areas. The episode of that I found really intriguing was about Bowdoin versus Vassar oh, yeah. and how essentially the food that each of these colleges served was kind of like this point at which it determined essentially in that school, in a Bowdoin's calculations, mm -hmm. how many, you know, financial aid students were they able to accept? And because Vassar, sacrifices on some of those vanity things, which are really important for recruiting actually, like food and dorms having AC and your own bathroom. Vassar suffers, quote unquote, because they are actually trying to do the more socially conscious thing. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like with those trends where you see parents who will like not want their schools to be like more, you know, more diverse. And so they make 
you know, more selfish decisions. They send their kid to the private school mm-hmm. or they send their kid to the school where, you know, the food, they'll go to Bowdoin because they know their, you know, their kid went, they visited and they thought the food was better. And, you know, that's where they want to go. And it really is wild how uh, it comes through and uh, it makes it harder for schools to recruit kids because unless you you your 18 year old self and your parents are like you know it actually we really value um a school that sacrifices the extras for the overall social good you have to be like aware enough that at 18 that your decision has those consequences the way it works is the way you make money as a private selective school is by attracting the maximum number of kids whose families are wealthy enough to pay the full tuition, right? So if full tuition is 60 grand, only a fraction of your students actually pay 60 grand. But the more, and the ones who do pay 60 subsidize everybody else. So if you, the only way you can survive is if you fill up as many slots as possible with ones paying the full 60. So those are kids of very, very, from very, very wealthy backgrounds. So in order to attract those kids, you then have to offer a degree of amenity that you know they're used to, they travel first class. When they go on vacations, they stay at the Four Seasons. So you can't have a shitty dorm. The food can't be lousy. You gotta have like tulips and flower beds. You gotta have a brand new you know, athletic center. But as you add all those things to attract the rich kid, your tuition has to rise to cover the cost of doing all those things. So you, you're in a kind of vicious circle. You've made your your education even more expensive, so only the super rich kids can afford to pay full trade, right? So you have to try even harder to attract that Spanish smaller and smaller pool. I mean, that's the treadmill that we've been on, and it's nuts. So we've been we've been turning selective schools into five star resorts for about twenty five years in this country, as schools are engaged in a kind of arms race to attract this ever shrinking pool of super rich people's kids, right? right? That's, and that, Vassar tried to get off the treadmill. So what they said was, you know what? The food in our cafeteria is just not gonna be that good. And the, the dorms are they're fine, but we're not gonna upgrade them, we can't afford to. We'd rather keep our costs lower so we can offer more spots to, uh, to kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And what happened was they got penalized for that. I mean. You know, they're, they're having real troubles. They had real troubles scrambling, trying to get uh, the, 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 the necessary number of kids who could pay full freight. So now is uh, Bowdoin's communications office unhappy? How are they feeling? Oh, my God. I am persona non grata at, at Bowdoin. I, be, they'll assuming, be okay. They have the money. They have, they'll be okay. They, I would be, I may sneak in there at one point in disguise just to see whether they have a, you know, a big picture of me in a, on the dartboard and the, in a student lounge, but um, no, I- They can I, afford a nice one, I'm sure. Uh, I think they can, but yeah, Bowdoin is the, I picked Bowdoin because Bowdoin is the the kind of quintessential example of uh, how nutso this whole process has become. Because the food, it, 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 they're Did famous for it? their food. No, well, I sent Jacob my, I can't plausibly pass for a student anymore, but I, one of my producers, Jacob can, and I sent him undercover to, to uh, Bowdoin, and he died like a king. And he, it's he. Is that he good? It, it, oh my God! He, it was like lobster. He like they had a lobster night and lobster night at a college. I mean, 
I mean, here's the thing. Cornell had a very good reputation for the food and they have an agriculture school. So, yeah. you know, they had so much land, so much land in upstate New York. So they had a great reputation for the food. Like they were one of the highest ranked and the food was like still college food. Like I, I do want to yeah. be real. Like it was like good, but it wasn't, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're describing a Bowdoin, it was not that. But then again, this Bowdoin was like, like 10 you know, years ago. Yeah, no, this is, it was, it's, it's absurd. It's like the Daniel Balut is like showing up to, you know, cook dinners on Sunday night. We did once have a Jose Andres uh, dinner, but it was like you had to pay and it was for like a hundred people. And, you know, it was, and I love he that was you're coming. The, you're, you're the aggrieved graduate of, of Cornell University. You know, they still call me <laughs> up asking for lots of money. And I'm like, you have that. You have the money. I know you do because... Um, I took that class at your school. Oh, that's right. that's right. They made the mistake of educating you about their own dysfunction. All right. Thank you so much, Malcolm. This has been so enlightening. We are so thrilled to have you back. Please let us know where we can listen to your newest your newest series. And um, yeah, any other anything we're else you want to put out there? History. Uh, we're taking a little break for the summer. We got four amazing episodes all queued up for uh, September. I would be roaring back, and then I have this new audiobook. I hate, I hate the Ivy League, um, the subtly entitled "I Hate the Ivy League," and um, you guys get to find out what he really thinks about it. I know exactly; it's a surprise. Um, but uh, and then all kinds of other things in the in the hopper down the line. But um, thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us, and until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Sage, and this has been the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.